what a, a blessing it is to be able to enter into this time of Advent. I love the season of Advent. Um, it is one of my favorite times. And, you know, during times like this, I kind of have a hard time. I'm pretty bad at keeping secrets. <laughs> I get so excited, especially when it comes to Tyler. I get so excited whenever I get him a Christmas gift, and I know that it is the perfect gift. I know that I've gotten him exactly what he wants, and he has no idea. I get so excited that I just want him to know. I want him to know that I have gotten him the perfect gift. And so I'll kind of hint to him, I'll say, Tyler, I got you the perfect gift, and you'll never guess what it is. And so, of course, Tyler will say, well, you got to give me at least two hints, right? And so I'll give in a little bit just because I'm so excited, and I'll say, okay, I'll, I'll give you just two hints. And so by the time I've given him his two hints, I am just bursting with excitement. I just want him to guess it. I just want him to know what this gift is. And if he pushes me just the tiniest bit, I will give in. And I will tell him what his gift is. Because I want him to know what's coming. I want him to know the gift that is coming because I want him to be just as excited as I am. I'm so excited that I want him to feel that same excitement that I feel because I want to share that with someone, right? I want him to be excited about this gift because it's just a gift to me, as much of a gift to me to see him excited as it is a gift to him, right? And so I just get so excited. And so this season is hard for me. <laughs> this is a hard season for me because I've got secrets that I have to keep. <laughs> I've got excitement that I've got to keep to myself. And as you entered into the sanctuary this morning, I hope that you were filled with the same excitement. I hope that you were filled with the excitement as you heard the readings of the gift of God, the gift that God has given us. These things that we hang up, they're, just, they're ornaments, they're decorations, right? But they are symbols of a gift that God is giving to us, that we have received in the past, but we will receive it. We have the joy and the expectation that Jesus will come again. Amen. Amen. That's a gift. I hope these signs and these symbols are exciting to you. I hope it's exciting to see these things hanging up in our sanctuary. And now I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33. If y'all would like to go sit, you're more than welcome to. If you'd like to, you're welcome to sit on stage if you like. Jeremiah, chapter 33. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will, call a righteous, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which the city will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray as we enter into this time of worship. I ask you to pray with me. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this season of Advent where we can enter into your house with thanksgiving and with excitement that you will come again. 
we are so thankful for that promise that you have given to us. I pray that you will give us open eyes and open ears to what you have to say to us through your word. I pray that you will give me the words to speak, that I might speak um, the words that you would have for us to hear this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So if you haven't read the book of Jeremiah before, it's a book that doesn't have very much excitement in it. Not a whole lot of good things, not a whole lot of hope. And so why in the world are we reading from the book of Jeremiah on a Sunday that is dedicated to remembering and recognizing the hope that we have? The book of Jeremiah, his time as a prophet to Israel is pretty well known as being full of sorrow for what Israel was going through. He's actually known as the weeping prophet, the prophet who weeps. Christian tradition also tells us that he wrote the book of Lamentations. If you've not read the book of Lamentations, the title kind of gives it away. Lamentations has that root word of lament. And lament means to just be full of sorrow over something, to be regretful or unhappy about something. This prophet Jeremiah is said to have written this book, not only is it maybe known about him, but it's, he wrote the book of lament, of sorrow. He is the weeping prophet. And so this shows us that Jeremiah was often the one with bad news for Israel. He was often the one who was sharing the bad things and bad prophecies for Israel. During Jeremiah's calling to be a prophet to Israel, Judah was in the midst of turmoil. Judah was in the middle of these major kingdoms surrounding it, these kingdoms that were all fighting to be the biggest empire. They were fighting for the control over the region. And so Judah was in the center of it, surrounded by it. And they were in constant turmoil with different kings taking over, in the midst of war and fighting all the time. Their livelihoods were stripped from them. Family members died. Their homes destroyed. Farms burned to the ground. Eventually, it's during this time period, during when Jeremiah was the prophet, that the temple was destroyed and the people were sent into exile. This is a time of great mourning and sorrow for the people of Israel. The Israelites had been called to be a light unto the nations. We've read the stories of Moses leading the people. They're blessed to be a blessing, right? The people of Israel had a calling to be a light unto the world so that all nations might know who Yahweh is. But yet they tried to be like all the other nations. They wanted a king. They wanted power. They wanted to be the best like all the other nations. And it caused them to be destroyed because they were not seeking the ways that God had taught them to go and had showed them to go. So they lost everything. They turned away from Yahweh and they lost everything. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, the people of Israel are suffering. They're suffering so much. Like I said, they've lost everything. Their homes are destroyed Jeremiah prophesies that their homes are going to be destroyed for the sake of war. These homes are going to be broken down and used to fortify the walls of the city. They will lose everything in the midst of war. 
I imagine that during this time, they are just crying out, Oh, come, Emmanuel. Oh, come, Emmanuel. How can God be with us right now? We need God with us. Where did you go? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Please ransom us, captive Israel. We sang the song earlier. Oh, come and ransom captive Israel as we mourn in lonely exile here. I imagine that this was the Israelites' cry as they're in the midst of war and suffering. But yet, in the midst of this book, in the middle of it, here in chapter 33 and a couple chapters before, in the midst of this destruction and suffering, we see that Jeremiah gives just a little glimpse of hope. We see just a little glimpse of hope as if he's calling out, Rejoice! Emmanuel will come to you, O Israel. You're crying out for a Savior, and Emmanuel will come. God will be with you again. Just as your roads have been destroyed, your houses have been burnt to the ground, your farms gone, all those roads will be repaved. Your homes will be rebuilt. God will be with you. You will enter into the promised land once again. You will no longer be exiles. All the things that Jeremiah prophesied would be burnt to the ground, he prophesies that they will be rebuilt by the righteous branch of David. And once this city is rebuilt, it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness named after what had, would take place, that the Lord would be their righteousness. And this righteous branch of the line of David, as we read in our scriptures, it's the righteous branch of David that will execute not punitive or punishing judgment, but restorative judgment. The people have experienced suffering based on their own actions, and the righteous branch of David will come not to add on to their pain and suffering, but this righteous branch of David will come and restore them. Restore them to their true potential, to what they were called to be. This righteous branch of David will bring restorative justice, the justice of God. While the people might have experienced, like I said, the consequences of their own unfaithfulness to God, God will still be faithful to them. And this righteous branch of David will restore all that has been lost. It's so interesting. The scripture literally repeats all the things that are destroyed. Those things will be rebuilt. It's restoring what had been to the fullness of what God had called them to be. Everything in their society, their families, their farms, their homes will be made whole all through this righteous branch of David. And we gather here together as Christians because we believe that that righteous branch of David came. That righteous branch of David is Jesus Christ. This righteous branch of David, Jesus, came in order not only to restore Israel, but to restore the whole world to what God intended it to be. Through sin, what God intended for creation was destroyed. And it's only through the restoration of God's restorative justice through Jesus Christ that we can be restored to what God hopes and longs for us, what God created us for. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see that he goes to those who are longing for a savior. 
He goes to those whose hearts are crying out, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We need God with us. He goes to those who are blind, who need a Savior. They can't take care of themselves. In this society, they would have been pushed off to the edges, beggars. And Jesus goes to them and says, Rejoice, Emmanuel is with you. God is with you. You have your sight again. God goes, uh, Jesus went to those who were stealing. Jesus went to the tax collector who stole, and it's through the restorative power of Jesus Christ that that tax, tax collector restored the money that had been stolen. It is through the restorative power of Jesus that he made the lame walk. It's through the restorative power of Jesus that he called to the man who had so much wealth and called him to give it to the poor so that the poor might be able to have money to feed themselves, so that they may be restored in society, and so that the wealthy man, his heart might be restored. We see that Jesus calls to those, and through the power of restoration, he heals the woman who had been bleeding for years and years. He restores her health. Jesus goes to those who are full of demons and he restores them so that they have power again over their mind and body. Through the power of Jesus, he restores the life of Lazarus. Amen. We see that Jesus brings about restorative justice. He restores through the justice of God, the righteousness of God can be seen through these acts of Jesus. Now, Jesus did not bring with him the fullness of the kingdom of God. We believe and we trust that Jesus will come again and bring about the fullness of, Jesus, of the kingdom of God. That's why we're here, right? We believe that Jesus will come and bring the fullness, heaven to earth. God will be with us forevermore. We trust in this. But Jesus did not bring this with him 2,000 years ago. Jesus embodied the kingdom and gave just glimpses of what the fullness of God's kingdom might look like. With each act of Jesus restoring strength, healing, wealth, whatever it might be, through each act of restoration and each miracle, Jesus gives a glimpse of what heaven looks like, of what the kingdom of God looks like. In each of these acts, Jesus says, Rejoice, Emmanuel has come to you. Emmanuel has come. God is with you here in this moment. I believe that each and every one of us here, we're here because our hearts have cried out at some point, Oh, come, Emmanuel. I need a Savior. We're here because our hearts are longing for something that the world can't give us. We're longing for a savior, for God to be with us, to ransom us from whatever might be holding us captive. Our hearts are longing for this. And maybe you didn't even realize you were longing for a savior until you hit rock bottom. Maybe it was a constant yearning that you felt over a long period of time, and then you finally named it when you entered into the holy place of God. Maybe God revealed God's self to you in a moment and you realized what you needed was God. 
whatever it might be, whatever your story of salvation, you came, you're here because you continue to long for Jesus and you have come face to face with the Savior. Amen. I believe that most of us, maybe not all of us, have experienced God with us. We've experienced what it's been like to come face to face with the Savior and be restored to God's intentions in our lives. We've been restored into the presence of God, and we can hear the Lord saying to us, Rejoice, I have come to you. When we experience restoration in the name of Jesus Christ, we do continue to cry out and long for God to be with us, long for the fullness of the kingdom of God. And in this, we long for the heart of Jesus. We long after the heart of Jesus. We long that the heart of Jesus, that everyone in Manchester might experience God's restorative justice, God's restoring grace. We long that everyone in Georgia might experience the restorative power of Jesus Christ. We long that everyone in the United States and in the world will experience this restorative grace of God. Amen. We long for this to happen now. We long for our family members who are suffering from addiction to experience the restoration of Christ through healing and rehabilitation. We long for our neighbors down the street who've never had enough to eat. They never know where their next meal is going to come from. We long for them to experience restoration, that they may always have a meal on their table. We long for those who never see good in anything to experience the rest, restoring power of Christ, that they might see God in everything. We're in a world that's longing for a Savior. We're in a world that is crying, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. They don't even know it. The world doesn't know it, but the world is longing for a Savior, longing for God to come and be with us. And just as Jesus went to those who were longing for a Savior, he went to them and he brought restoration. If we long after the heart of Jesus, we must be compelled to do the same. We must be compelled to be the hands and the feet of Christ and do what Jesus has already done, to follow in his footsteps. We are to go and to bring glimpses of the kingdom of God, to bring glimpses of what the fullness of God's kingdom, what heaven looks like. We're to bring glimpses of that to this world, to everyone that we meet. It might not come in a big show of power, but it happens in individual interactions. We can bring glimpses of what Jesus, what the kingdom looks like to everyone we meet, and every time we talk to someone, they can see Jesus in us. You might show the kingdom of God to someone by inviting them to your home for dinner. You might show the kingdom of God to someone by making sure that they can get into a rehab facility when they need it. You might show the kingdom of God to someone by bringing them food so that they have a meal on their table. You might show the kingdom of God to someone just by learning their name, just by learning who they are, learning the names of their children. 
what they like, what they don't like, just by getting to know someone so that they know that someone cares for them. And we care for them because God cares for them. Amen? That is what the kingdom of God looks like, just in a glimpse. Just a glimpse of what the kingdom might look like. When we hear or see people crying out, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, we can respond to them with love. And in God's justice, we say to them, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel will come to you. You who are captive, you who are hungry, you who are sick, rejoice, Emmanuel, God is with you. God will come again. We believe and we trust that Jesus will come again and bring about the fullness of God's kingdom, but we long for people to experience God's kingdom now. We long for people to see what God, God's kingdom looks like, even in the smallest glimpses, so they can experience the hope and the excitement that we have. Amen? That excitement that you get when you buy the perfect gift. When you buy the perfect gift and you just want that other person to know that they have the perfect gift coming to them, that is the gift of Jesus Christ. Amen? The excitement that we feel, we need to share it. The excitement that Jesus is coming again, and we want everyone to know that. This starts with us. God has called us to be glimpses of the kingdom of God. We are called to have faith, which goes hand in hand with the works, the hard work of participating in God's kingdom and intentionally seeking out ways to meet the needs of people who are suffering and to show God's love. As the praise team comes, I want to invite you to consider um, that song that we sang earlier, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Think of those that you may know and those that you haven't met yet who are crying out for salvation. They're crying out for God to be with them. They're crying out for restoration. They're crying out for hope. How can you embody Christ to those people? How can you let them know that they have a reason to rejoice? For Jesus is coming. Amen. They have a, a reason to rejoice. And if you're wondering, where in the world do I start? How can I find the time to embody Christ to someone? How can I find the time to meet people who are in need, who are suffering? I've got some ideas. Come talk to me after the service. There are limitless ways that you can participate in God's kingdom here in Manchester. Limitless ways. Please come talk to me. There are so many opportunities. I want you to invite you to pray that God will reveal ways that you can participate in God's kingdom here in Manchester. If the thought of participating in God's kingdom is stressful because of time, I want you to ask God what you need to be saying no to. How can God open doors for you to participate? We live in a world that is crying out for hope. We're living in a world that's crying out for a savior. May we be the glimpse of God in everyone's lives. May we bring hope and restoration to our broken world. This is the hope of Christ.
that they, the Advent songs that we have are just some of the best worship songs. They're some of the best music that we have um, in our faith. Um, we're going to be in a couple of places this morning. Uh, we're going to begin in the book of Malachi, uh, Malachi chapter 3. And then in a little while, we're going to go over to Luke chapter 3. And so we're going to start in Malachi and move over to Luke. I'm going to let you remain seated while I read this text from Malachi, because later on I'm going to ask you to stand whenever we read our gospel text from Luke chapter 3. But if you like to have the text open, um, we'll start in Malachi, and then you can, um, you can turn over to Luke chapter 3 after that. Let's uh, begin in prayer. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. May our hearts be open to your truth, a truth that at times can be difficult to swallow, but will always set us free. Amen. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob... Have not per- You, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, Amen. Um, over the past seven or eight years or so, maybe a little bit longer than that even, I've, uh, I've made several attempts at becoming a runner. Um, do you have something like that in your life? Or you, you uh, make attempts to become it, right? To become a runner, to become um, healthier, to become this or that or whatever it may be. Um, you have those short seasons where you're, uh, you're pursuing it really well, and then after a little while, you, you lose it, you fall off. You go back through the same old routines that don't include that new practice that you were so excited to start. Running has been that for me. <laughs> I first decided I wanted to be a runner when I was in college. Um, then when Mary Elizabeth and I lived in Kansas City, I would go a few months. I would go you know, a couple months, two months, three months. And I would get into my running practice. I would run three to five times a week. 
And then the busy times in the semester would come when lots of papers were due and that practice would fall off and it would suffer. And then I would go a week without running and that week would turn into two weeks and that two weeks would return, turn into a month and then that month would turn into three months until a new semester started and I was ready for a new start to become a runner again. What's interested me about running is just how many variables there are to it. It seems like the least complicated sport or workout, right? You just put your shoes on and go running, right? That's what I would have thought. But that is just not so. You can have bad form if you're running. If you can start off running too fast, which wears you out, so you don't have the endurance to make it through your run. Um, you can stretch too much, actually. You cannot stretch enough. You can stretch incorrectly. <laughs> the big issue that I've run into is my shoes, um, you can have shoes that don't fit you well, and this can affect your run. You can have shoes that are worn out, and your feet are going to start hurting, and you're not going to be able to run because your feet are hurting. You can actually tie your shoes too tight. If you tie your shoes too tight, it can hurt your feet, and you can stop running. And, and one of the, one of the, that's what I've really struggled with. Um, and then the, the other aspect of it is, is the beginning of the run. You can start out uh, running too hard, and this wears you out, right? Your lungs and legs and whole body, they're just getting going, so you've got to give them a chance to catch up with what you're doing. I use this coaching app on my phone that's been really helpful for me lately, and there's the coach on there, Coach Bennett. He's sitting there talking to you throughout the running, throughout the run, and Coach Bennett explains at the begin that at the beginning of the run, your lungs are like balloons, um, and it's kind of like when you first start trying to blow up a balloon, it can be really difficult. And so you need to blow it up and get it stretched out so that it makes it easier to blow up. And your, your, your lungs are like that. Your legs can, can struggle to get into that rhythm. Even if you stretch them well, they, they still are trying to get warmed up. And, it, and, and you can hurt them very easily if you're not careful as you get started. On top of this, if you have that bad, th bad form I was talking about, if you land poorly on your feet, if you're hunched over too much, or if you're hunched back too much, you're going to hate running. And the absolute worst part about it is that you have to run to learn these things. <laughs> you have to run to know how tight you need your shoes to be. You have to run to know how far forward you need to lean. You need to run to know that, oh, my, my legs particularly need to be stretched out more. My calves need to particularly be stretched out more. And, you know, there's just all these things that can go wrong. And so my question is, is have I sold you on becoming a runner yet? <laughs> I say all of this to say that despite the pain, the tiredness, the soreness, and even the sometimes embarrassing nature of it, I've grown to, to love running enough to, to really attempt to become a runner. I say all this to say that sometimes the very difficult things that we pursue in our lives are the most rewarding I think that's a pretty good way to describe God's judgment. We all probably have an idea of what God's judgment is like. We have different images in our heads, stories, scriptures maybe, ideas and beliefs about what God's judgment looks like. And Advent or Christmas this season might seem like an odd time to discuss God's judgment. We're supposed to be singing of good news of great joy and cheer, right? We're supposed to be celebrating and telling stories during the season. But I think that this is why the church year is so important for us. Advent certainly leads us to great joy and cheer. But it's also a time for us to acknowledge that good news of great joy requires a lot of preparation. A lot of waiting. 
And Advent is all about preparation. Kind of like becoming a runner or anything else difficult that we might pursue. It takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of work. A lifetime of preparation, really. And so we come back to Advent year after year. Every single year we come back to this season to do it again. We turn in this season to the prophets because they are so good at calling us to wait, to prepare. Our prophet this morning is Malachi. He's not a commonly known book or uh, or prophet in our scripture. Malachi is what's known as post-exilic or second temple period. We've been talking a little bit on Wednesday nights about the Babylonian exile, the the removal of the people of Judah to the, 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 uh, the kingdom of Babylon. Prophets like Jeremiah, who we heard from last week and this past week on Wednesday, they, they come and they warn the people of the coming exile to prepare for the exile, that the removal of the, the, from them from their land is going to happen. And then Jeremiah, as we, as we heard from him last week, he actually preaches through the exile as well. He tells them to prepare to settle down for a little bit. It's going to be some time of waiting. Malachi is a prophet who comes after the people have returned from exile, after they've been in Babylon for 70 years and then returned to the land. Unfortunately, the people of Judah have picked up some of their old practices again, though. The cycle of brokenness of of the people of God continues. Being the people of God has proven to be difficult. Kind of like being a runner has been difficult for me over the past eight years. I have my seasons of faithfulness to the practice and then I miss a week and a week becomes a month and a month becomes three months. All because I didn't prioritize. Going to the temple and sacrificing and worshiping every so often proves to be pretty easy for the people. It's the consistent practice of the way of God in the everyday and the systems of power and culture that proves to be difficult Not only for Judah and Israel, but for the church as well. That's what makes makes them and us the people of God is those everyday practices and they're the most difficult to maintain. The unfaithfulness of God's people, the brokenness in the world which God desires us to participate in undoing is why God's judgment comes. In our text this morning, Malachi tells the people that judgment is coming. It is coming. The season of Advent proclaims to us that judgment is coming. And we all have images of what that means. The people of Judah and Israel had images of what that meant. Most of those images would have been punishment for those enemies, those people of Babylon and Assyria, those big empires who had oppressed them. But that's what's so fun about our scripture is right when you think you've figured out who God's enemies is, there's a story that comes along and says, maybe not. (laughs) Do you know the story of Jonah? Jonah had an image of what God's judgment would look like falling on the people of Nineveh, of Assyria, a people who had been oppressing the people of God. But instead, God's steadfast love extends even to Jonah's enemies. And this makes Jonah mad, sad and depressed even. The idea that people outside of Israel and Judah could receive Yahweh's mercy and steadfast love is horrifying to Judah, to Jonah. And so it's the prophet Jonah who ends up being further from God than God's supposed enemies. Malachi makes a bold statement in this prophecy. In verse 2 he says, Who can endure the coming messenger of God's judgment? This is a shocking message for people who are worshiping Yahweh but not living uh, as in Yahweh's way. Their answer would have been 
us. We're prepared for the Messiah's coming. We're God's people. God's coming is going to be good for us. I think many of us might answer the same way. Me, I can endure God's judgment. Come, Lord Jesus. And this is why Advent is so important for us to make sure that that's true. Are we prepared? Are we prepared for the coming judgment? That's what Advent is all about. If we think that there's nothing in our lives that need the refining fire, the fuller soap, and at the same time we love to point our fingers at others that we think do deserve and need that fire and soap, then we need Advent desperately. Malachi says that the Lord's drawing near is for the sake of judgment, and that's a part of Christmas that we've been trained to gloss over, I think. Judgment is bad news, and we're taught only to focus on the good news in this season. Christmas is about grace. Let's talk about grace, not judgment. Let's talk about judgment. (laughs) Judgment often appears destructive. Many of the images that we all have of judgment are of destruction. Depending on where we stand in relation to God's judgment, it may appear harsh and painful and unfair. Judgment would seem to be the opposite of grace, and at times... And in certain places. What if I were to tell you that God's judgment, God's justice is actually creative, not destructive? God's judgment is just. We'd agree on that. I think God's judgment is just because it is creative. How is God's judgment creative? Let's take a quick trip back to the beginning to answer this question. The story of creation in Genesis gives us a full picture of God's justice. For wondering where an image of God's justice is, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are a good image of that. And in Genesis 1, God's intention of order is made known. We're told that before God begins creating, that the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. As our Wednesday night group would be able to tell you, in Scripture, water often represents chaos and destruction. This is why in the book of Revelation, the image of the sea is that it is no more. The sea is no more. Chaos is no more. God creates by taking what is chaotic, the waters, and destructive, and establishes order through it, and then pronounces it good, serving a good purpose, a righteous and just purpose. God's role is to pronounce what is good, and creation's role is to live into that. This is a judgment. This is God making a judgment that is good, he says. He is making a judgment. Judgment is present in our world before sin. What happens in the story of the fall is a brokenness of the the relationships, the relationality that is formed in creation between God and people and the earth. In Genesis 3, the first humans go outside of that judgment that God has made. They go outside of that relationship and brokenness happens because of it. They seek life from creation rather than the creator who is the very breath of life. The result of this turning away from the source of life is obviously death. And the destructive ways of humanity is grounded in this. It results in the human dilemma that we might call exile. Sin can be defined as anything that breaks that relationship that God intended, that goes outside of that judgment that God has made in the beginning. The web of relationality that all creation is a part of is broken and in need of reconciliation. The result is a distortion of the image of God ourselves, a distortion of God's justice and judgment in the world. 
God's judgment doesn't end with his decision to exile Adam and Eve, though, from the garden. The whole story of Scripture tells of God's attempts and and mission to restore that garden, to restore that good judgment and justice. The whole story of Scripture tells of this. It goes through a chosen nation and a covenant people, and then it moves to a particular people that's established by God's own sacrifice who comes as a child and yet a king. God's judgment that we see in his work of creation is the same judgment that Malachi is proclaiming. It is creative, not destructive. How is God's justice creative even when it seems destructive? God's judgment tears down that which is unjust, that which causes brokenness, that which goes outside of the bounds of what he is judged as good. God says through Malachi, his messenger, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This list of sinful systems and practices would have been what Malachi saw as the evil of Judah in his day. What we should take from it is is that God's judgment comes against any practices and systems that humans may set up that cause broken relationships, that go outside of the bounds of what God has declared good, what God has judged as good. Malachi tells of a messenger and then of God's own coming. As Christians, we say that John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy of the coming messenger. And then Jesus, who comes as Emmanuel, God with us, is God coming Jesus throughout his life brings judgment to unjust practices. He goes, he does this in a surprising way, a way that would have likely been surprising to Malachi even. It begins with John the Baptist though. And so we turn, we open our scripture to Luke chapter 3. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? In the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iteria and Trachononias, and Linus ruler of Abilene during the high priests of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. The hope of this voice is that, the, that this voice from the wilderness is that all who hear it would prepare. Would prepare for the arrival of the Lord who brings judgment. The hope of this voice is that the people will begin the work that the Lord will accomplish. The hope of this voice is that the people will begin to prepare for the Lord by making his path straight. For when the Lord does come, the valleys will be filled in, meaning the oppressed, those who are at the bottom, will be lifted up. 
while the mountains and hills will be made low, meaning those who have been made it to the, who have made it to the top through unjust practices of sin will be brought low. This is exactly what Mary's song tells us. We're going to read it in a couple of weeks. She says, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He will make things right. Not by coming in military might, though, but by coming and showing a different way of living as a community of radical belonging. He will make things right by changing hearts, by cleansing souls of the corruption of sin that leads to broken practices and systems that oppress the many and exalt the few. The messengers came warning the people to turn from their ways, to return to the Lord, that when his judgment does come, you will recognize it as creative and not destructive. Jesus comes as God's judgment. The messengers like Malachi and John who come before him come in hope that the people will change, that the valleys will be made that have been made in our broken practices and the oppressed that, that are down there, that those valleys will be filled in, that the mountains that have exalted a few will be brought low. Think about what Luke does to locate us just before he tells us about John's message. He tells us that, that this is all happening in the reign of the Roman emperor Tiberius, the governor Pilate and rulers Herod and Philip and some others. Those are the mountains. Those are the mountains that John goes on to say will be brought low. Luke also mentions the priest Annas and Caiaphas. I think those are the hills that he mentions. They're not quite as powerful as the mountains, but they've got power. They've been lifted up. The unjust practices will be put to an end. The corrupt systems will be made straight and narrow. The messengers like Malachi and John who come before Jesus, they hope that the people will begin the process that the Lord will complete. And Jesus comes and he sets out a new way for God's judgment to rule. He shows a way to a small group of people how to live under God's judgment and what is good and what is not good. But then he goes away. Because like the messengers, Jesus' hope is that the people will allow the Spirit to radically transform them so that they are not relying on those systems and, and practices. Jesus reveals God's kingdom as ruling in anyone's life who chooses his way of living in the world, and that one day the kingdom will arrive in fullness, and those mountains will finally be brought down, and the valleys will finally be filled in, Justice will be accomplished. Restoration will be completed. And, you know, I think, I really believe and I, I think that we want to see this. We long to see this. We're waiting to see this. We want to see things made right. We want justice and righteousness to rule. We want King Jesus on the throne. We want Jesus to come again. But I don't know. Do we always want that? I mean, sure, we want it, but... Do we want to go through it? No, I'm not talking about the horror that some end times theology wants us to imagine. I'm talking about the hard work that the voice of the wilderness calls us to. We're told to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight paths, to fill in the valleys and tear down the mountains, to make the way equitable for the Lord. Sure, we want Jesus to come, but are we prepared to undo those practices, to end those practices are we prepared to see our empires tumbled, our systems changed, our ways made straight and narrow? This is what Jesus does when he comes. He doesn't do it forcibly through military might as they expected him to. He doesn't do it through the coming power, coming to power as any king or kingdom or empire or emperor or president or global power. He does it by surrendering any power that he does have 
and calling us to do the same. The book of Revelation gives a powerful image of when this is going to happen. The second advent of Christ. John, the revelator, the writer of of Revelation, the one who records his vision, he uses the name Babylon, the great empire that exiled Judah just before Malachi was written. He uses this name Babylon to describe the corrupt powers and principalities of the world. Babylon in John's time would have been Rome or any other system of power that led to valleys being made. In chapter 18, when the empire is brought to judgment, there are kings and rulers and merchants who have profited and been raised raised up by the corrupt practices of the empire who view God's judgment as destructive. It's destructive to those on the inside. They cry in torment, says John, for the fallen city. Fallen, fallen, great Babylon, they say. Advent comes year after year to make sure that when the judgment comes, that we are not on the outside of the fallen city crying for it. Advent comes year after year to make sure that when judgment comes, it looks like a creative process, not a destructive process. Advent comes to make sure that we're prepared for God's judgment. As the praise team comes, we're going to sing one final song. Um, the music in this song is going to be pretty familiar to you, but the words are, are going to likely be new to you. Um, if you'd like to sing, you can follow along with the words, or you can just um, listen closely to them. Advent comes to make sure that God's judgment is recognized as creative and good, declaring what is good so that we may live into it. Advent comes to make sure we aren't numbered among Jonah and the kings and merchants who are crying at God's justice and judgment. May we take this time now, hearing the, the lyrics of this song, to allow the Spirit to point out where we are too dependent on those broken systems, where we are too dependent, where we might mourn the loss of those systems and those practices. Maybe we should be asking what in us might be refined. What in us might be washed away? One scholar asked this, when God's promise spoken through Malachi is finally fulfilled, what will look different in our church? What will look different in our world, our lives? He goes on to clarify, this text is not an occasion for us to attack our enemies or point out all the things that they are doing wrong, like Jonah does. Rather, we are to acknowledge that we may need some refining ourselves.